Father, thank you for giving us so much in Christ, for giving us a hiding place. Lord, we come to you this morning from different walks of life, from different experiences over the past week, and we're in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, to bring life to this dark world. Lord, please pour out your Holy Spirit in this place. Open our hearts. Father, we just right now in the silence of our own hearts want to ask that you would speak to us, that we would pay attention, that we would hear your voice through your word, through scripture, speaking to our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. We come to you as the one who is willing to give everything for us. We know that you long to speak to our hearts and to bring us new life today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Lee Vendon tells a story about some medical students who walked into the room. They got in the room and they saw their patients there. They were quite pleased that this wasn't like sometimes you see in the ER waiting room where people are bustling around and they're uh, intense and uptight. These people were very calm. They were cool and collected. They seemed to, to be perfectly okay with being there. And as the medical students looked at these patients, they they began to figure out what it was that they needed to do for them. This is often what you have to do in medical school. You have to make an analysis and figure out what it is that the patient needs. As they looked at these patients, one of the first things that came to mind was maybe they need a change in diet because they just seem a little lethargic. So they went and they tried to convince these patients that they should change their diet in order to have more energy, and the patients just simply wouldn't have it. So they began to check around on the patients' bodies to see maybe there was some broken bones that were making them lethargic, maybe, but they couldn't find anything wrong with their bone structure. They thought, well, maybe we need to put them on some different medications, and the patients just wouldn't have any of it. Then they said, well, maybe they just need a little bit more social life, a little bit more fellowship. So they tried to convince these patients that they just needed to get along and to have fun together and be there together more. Really didn't make a difference for those patients. On and on these medical students went trying to figure out what they could do as they had tried everything that they had learned Until finally they realized something about these patients. They weren't breathing. They were cadavers. They were lifeless. They were dead. And although on the outside they were perfectly formed bodies, there was no life inside. A terrible position to be in when one is expecting life. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, we pick up with the story of the church that Jesus warns needs life. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, this is right after we talked about last week, the church of Thyatira. This church is the church of Sardis. In verse 1 it says, And to the angel, that's the messenger, that's the leader of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Sardis was a church, a city that was actually in Asia Minor, just like these other churches. And it was built in a similar way to a church of Pergamum that we looked at back a few weeks ago. This church, I mean, this city had it, it was built on the plain, a part of it, and then the other part was on a mountain. The citadel of the city was up high on a mountain with cliffs that are estimated to be about a thousand feet tall. I have a picture here of maybe some of the remnants of Sardis, and you can see just the corner of the walls there. You see the, the long cliff that was guarding that citadel. Now, there was a, a king back. In uh, long before the time of Christ, who built this city, and 
he was a very wealthy king and he put all of his riches into this city and he felt quite protected because he had these cliffs surrounding him. He felt like they were okay as a city. And so, in a way, they fell asleep. Because in the year B.C. 547, Cyrus the Great came to make a siege on the city of Sardis. And as he came to the city of Sardis and they took the bottom parts of the city, they couldn't get to the citadel because of these large cliffs. They weren't sure what to do. Then night came, and all the inhabitants of Sardis went to sleep that night. They didn't leave a watchman on the walls of the citadel. And during the night, one brave volunteer from Cyrus the Great's army scaled the outside of those cliffs, scaled all the way up the walls and all the way into the city and went down and opened up that gate so that in could come the warriors from Cyrus' army. And the the city was overthrown. In fact, this happened twice Some 300 years later, again, the city of Sardis was seen as this well-protected city. Everybody inside felt like they were okay. They thought that these cliffs were guarding them and protecting them. But when Antiochus the Great came to the city, the same thing happened. At night, everybody was asleep. No watchmen on the walls. They felt safe. They felt like everything was okay. And then somebody scaled the walls, went into the city, and again opened the gates and allowed For soldiers to come in. It's a dangerous place to be in. To feel like you're perfectly okay. To feel like everything is going alright. But to really have an intense problem. Like Jesus lists here. And What does Jesus say to the church of Sardis? He says that you have a name. Now in the Bible, a name so often represents character or reputation. You have this reputation that you are alive. But really, you are dead. My grandpa, he had a great sense of humor. and A lot of his jokes were good jokes. But there was one joke as a kid that actually terrified me. My grandpa had this joke that he said, when I die, now he, would, he was getting a little older and so he would make jokes like, you know, when the bananas are green at the store, I just don't buy them because I don't know for sure I'm going to be able to eat them. Or when I wake up in the morning and I read the obituary and my name's not listed there, uh, I figure it's going to be a good day. My grandpa, I admire him. He, he's the one who was one of the first to tell me, you are meant for the ministry. At a time when I was going to business school and didn't intend on going to the ministry at all, he said, you're meant to be a minister. I said, well, that's nice, Grandpa. Little did I know he knew what he was talking about, uh, that God was impressing that maybe on his heart. But there was one joke when I was a kid that scared me, because my grandpa would tell me, he said, when I die, and you come to my funeral service. I'm going to be right there in that casket. I'm going to be laying there. And I want you to, to get up and to come and to walk past the casket. And you'd have me and my little cousin Rebecca there. And we'd be looking at him like, what? Oh, okay. We're going to come by your casket. And he says, and I want you to watch. He said, when you come by my casket, I'm going to wink at you. That terrified me as a little kid. Grandpa's going to wink at me from his casket. I don't want to go by his casket. I don't want to see that. That's terrifying. To see somebody who should be dead moving is a terrifying thing. And to see somebody who should be alive, who's actually dead, is also quite terrifying. It's the things that horror films are made of. Verse 2 says, Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come to you. Here Jesus is saying, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain. There was something about this church of Sardis. There was something about this time period of prophetic history that was a good thing, that they should strengthen, that they should hang on to. But at the same time, it says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come 
like a thief. You need to strengthen those things which are about to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. You've started on this journey. Now we talked last week about reformers who began to crop up in the 13th and 14th and 15th century. The Christian church, like we talked about last week, had fallen into all kinds of abuses of God's law and of God's true form of worship. And we as a Christian church had gone away from faithfulness to Jesus. And so men began to rise up and say, hey, we've got to get back to the Bible. And they began to translate the Bible back into the common English language or into the German language. And they often were persecuted for this. We talked about John Huss who went all the way to being burned at the stake because he was trying to get the Bible into common people's hands like yours and mine. We saw last week how Jesus says, I'm the one who searches with those eyes of fire. I'm, I'm searching hearts and will you stay faithful to me? But here, Jesus doesn't really have anything positive to say about the church of Sardis. This is pretty amazing because this is the time of the Re- Protestant Reformation. So we ended the church of Thyatira, probably ended somewhere in the early 1500s, the middle 1500s. This is the time when Martin Luther came along and made such radical uh, propositions about what God wanted for his people. Martin Luther was a, a man who grew up and became a Catholic priest. He had this roadside conversion experience where he's riding along in his horse, this lightning bolt struck, and this crazy storm was going on. And he said, if I make it out of this alive, then I promise to give my life to you. His dad was really unhappy with that, but he went on and decided to become a priest. And so he gave his life to serving God and to the church. But Martin Luther was somebody who was burdened with guilt. He was somebody who would whip himself, trying to to do penances, trying to do whatever it took in order to make things right with God. And yet he found no peace. No matter how hard he whipped himself, no matter how many prayers he prayed, he couldn't find peace with God. He went on a visit to Rome. And in Rome, there's a famed pilot staircase. It's purported to be uh, the staircase Sorry, not in Rome. That wouldn't be in Rome, would it? If it's Pilate's staircase, that would be in Judea where Jesus is purported to have gone to, up to Pilate, uh, to where Pilate was at. And as Martin Luther climbed these stairs, in this day they would actually climb the stairs on their knees. You may have heard this story about Martin Luther before. And every step they would kneel there and they would say another prayer, maybe the rosemary or something like that. And they were hoping by this to somehow gain favor with God. As they went up these stairs, they were trying to, to, in a way, ascend closer to God. But still, as Martin Luther went to the top of these stairs, he found no peace. He went on these pilgrimages to Rome and other places to visit these amazing relics, and he still had no peace. And then one day, Martin Luther found a Bible. And in that Bible, he read something that forever changed Martin Luther's experience. Romans 1 and verse 17, it says, The just shall live by faith. This became the theme of Martin Luther's ministry. He realized that it's only by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have any right to the presence of God. He read verses like Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Acts 4.12, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He began to realize that we could go directly to the Father. We didn't need to go through some earthly priest, but we had a heavenly high priest. That Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Because of Jesus. When he began to discover these things, he realized that the people under his charge, those who he was entitled to minister to, were being deceived. He realized that some changes needed to happen in the church, and so he did what we should always do, is we recognize that there are changes that need to take place. He took it to the church leadership, and he went and he visited the prelates and the the leaders in the church, and he began to tell them about the need 
for change, for the indulgences to be done away, for penances to be done away, that we needed to have faith in the righteousness of Jesus. He went, and the famous uh, thing that happened on October 31, that uh, makes October 31 a day to remember rather than Halloween. It's the, uh, I like to call it Reformation Day. It's the day when Martin Luther went to that church in Wittenberg. And he had written up some 95 thesis. Now, it was actually common practice for people when they, it was kind of like a bulletin board where if you were studying some things, you would go and you'd post that up for everybody to see. Well, he posted this up on the door in the church in Wittenberg, but God had designed that he do this at just the right time. As he'd written these 95 theses about why the indulgences were not okay, about why penances were misleading the church. And he was trying to help the church, our Christian church, which had gone so far astray. He was trying to help it to recognize a need to return to Jesus. As he nailed those theses to that church door, some well-meaning people came along and they saw this and they were so astounded by it that they grabbed it and something just recently had taken place and that was the invention of the printing press. And they took those 95 theses and they went and they took it off the doors and then they printed it and they made a bunch of copies of it. Then they put it back on the doors and then they began to spread these copies all around Germany. This didn't make the church happy, as you can imagine. Indulgences were how the great cathedrals were built. Indulgences were how all this money was raised for the church. And so for Luther to be attacking these things hurt the church's finances, and the church wasn't happy about that. So little by little, Martin Luther had to separate from the church by the church pushing him basically out of the church, and he began to form an entire new movement. This is the foundation of the church of Sardis in prophetic history. This is those things that the church of Sardis is told to remember. Remember this origination, this start of your journey in following Jesus. Remember how Martin Luther was taking out the stuff that was getting between you and Jesus. Remember how he was trying to help you in your walk so that you could trust in the righteousness of Jesus. Remember those things and hold fast to them. But a famous Lutheran historian by the name of Lars Qualbin, in his book, A History of the Christian Church, writes, at this time period, after Martin Luther, the gospel was treated as doctrine rather than as a power of God unto salvation. Something began to go wrong. As the Lutherans began to set up camp around what Martin Luther had taught them, and other reformers who had come up like John Calvin, the, the Calvinists began to set up ca- camp around John Calvin, and you had those who were following Melanchthon, you had those who were arguing about the different doctrines of, of those reformers who were just trying to point people to Jesus, just trying to point people to the Bible. They began to argue about which reformer was correct. He said the gospel was treated as doctrine rather than as a power of God unto salvation. And Christianity was presented as a religion of right thinking without a corresponding emphasis on the right condition of the heart. Friends, when Christianity just becomes words on a page, when it becomes doctrines and creeds, when it just becomes a set of beliefs, when it just becomes logical to us and it doesn't impact our heart, we have a name that we live, but really we're dead. Did you know that just coming to church doesn't ensure your salvation? I hope you know that. Recently I heard somebody say it. It doesn't make you a Christian to come to church any more than it makes you a car to go out and stand in your garage. It simply doesn't change your life. That was the problem that began to take place. They knew the, book, the chapter of Romans 3. They knew Romans 1.17. They knew all these things about faith in Jesus. But that faith stayed up here. And it didn't impact their hearts it's a fatal thing that's so easy to fall into this historian goes on to say that the people of that time the theologians became quarrelsome quarrelsome theologians and had a parched protestantism 
This is what Jesus is referring to. When he points to this church who has a name that they're alive, they're Protestants, they're getting back to the faith of Jesus, they're following the Bible. But then they began to have these councils and they began to set up new creeds and new doctrines and and new traditions that they were stacking on top of the pure Word of God and it distracted them from Jesus. And anything that distracts you from Jesus is not worth having in your life because Jesus is life. It's a fatal deception to feel like just because you're following in somebody's footsteps who had truth that you're okay, that You are alive and you're having an experience with God just because of your knowledge when your heart's not being transformed. This is what Jesus says, that they had a name, that they were alive, but really they were dead. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, verse 3, hold fast and repent therefore. If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. But Jesus goes on to say this, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Sure enough, there were a few who were remaining faithful to Jesus during this time. There were those who were continuing to point to a need for a change of heart. There were those like John Bunyan who wrote the famed Pilgrim's Progress in the 17th century. This amazing book that I believe God led him to write that helped us to see how to walk in that Christian journey. There were many who were staying faithful to Jesus. Actually, I shouldn't say many because what did Jesus say? There are a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments because the vast group of Christianity became the Church of England. And they, again, united church and state together. The, the church became the, the Anglican church. They became the Lutheran church. They, they had all these divisions and they had all these creeds and all of it was stacking up things upon the Word of God. And did you know that Martin Luther, although he was following the Bible and what he found about belief and faith in Jesus Christ for our righteousness, he still believed in infant bat- baptism. And I challenge you to find the idea of infant baptism anywhere in the entire Bible. But he believed that that was sufficient. Martin Luther was somebody who still believed in Sunday being the day of worship. He didn't find everything because God leads people along on a path that grows brighter and brighter, Proverbs 4.18 says, until the full light of day. But God help me. God help us to not be deceived like the church of Sardis. To not think that we are alive. That just because we have a name of Christian. That just because we have the name Seventh-day Adventist. Whatever we cling to. Just because we feel that we understand the Bible. To assume that we have a living relationship with Christ. Today we've had this amazing experience of hearing the testimonies of Sheila and of Joseph about how God radically has changed their lives. Today we've seen and we've witnessed the experience of Sheila in entering the waters of baptism. That experience that is to represent going down into the grave and being raised to life. In fact, look with me at Romans chapter 6, our scripture reading. Romans chapter 6 describes this experience of baptism that I believe is essential and that I believe often we may miss a vital aspect of it. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Now the first five chapters of Romans are those chapters that, that Luther especially focused on, focusing on faith and justification in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin any longer live in it? When Paul says, certainly not, that's the strongest Greek phrase that he could possibly use. He uses it here to say, should we go on living in sin once we decide that we're Christians, once we take the name of Christ? Verse 3, or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Did you know that that's what took place today? That up here we symbolically had a watery grave and we're saying Sheila wants to put her life away, her old life. She wants to die. 
Now, what would have happened if the motion of baptism had stopped like this? I don't think it would have taken Jeff too long before he would come running up to say, hey, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with being baptized into his death. It's, it's not okay just to come to the cross of Jesus Christ. We praise God that Jesus died on the cross for us and he took our sins. He bore our shame on the cross. But what if Jesus had stayed in the tomb? What if Jesus had not been resurrected? What if you didn't have a living Savior? Could you be a Christian today? No. Sometimes we stop at the cross in our experience. We come to the cross, we confess our sins, we ask for forgiveness, and then we go on about our dead ways, living on in sin as if it didn't really matter. We took the name of Christian, we took the name of Christ, He's now justified us, He's now covered us. It's okay to go on living my old life. But Paul says, should we go on in sin? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin any longer live in it? Or do you not know, verse 3, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Friends, I need resurrection power. You need resurrection power. We can't just come to the cross and have our sins forgiven and not walk in newness of life. Jesus has an abundant life for you. He said in John 10.10 10, that the thief has come to steal and to kill and destroy. Sin is miserable. Matthew 1 and verse 21, it says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus looks at sin and he says, This is captivating to my people. This is destruction. It wreaks havoc in their lives and I don't want it. So John 10.10 continues. He says, But I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. There's a contrast between Satan's ways and Jesus' ways. There's a contrast between the life of sin and the life of life in the Spirit. Paul continues and he says, We are to walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Just like Jesus was raised out of that tomb, He came up in a glorified body. He came up in a body that was able to walk through walls that was a perfect body. Spiritually, Christ wants to give you a brand new life when you come to Jesus. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, verse 6 continues. Jesus doesn't want you to be a slave of sin anymore. He wants to give you victory in your life. He wants to give you a brand new life. He wants your faith not to just cling to His justifying righteousness, but to cling to His sanctifying righteousness. He wants for you to have a brand new life. For he who has died has been freed from sin, verse 7 continues. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we are to live lives that are dead to sin, but that are alive to Jesus. Lives that are abundant. Lives that are filled with the life of Jesus Christ. But if we get distracted, if it just becomes a head religion, we can't really walk in that newness of life. We can believe it. We can believe that Jesus rose from the grave, but if we don't allow Him to change our lives, it all becomes so pointless. We become just like the church in Sardis, who had a name that they were alive, but really, they were dead. Last week, I shared with you about my experience with pornography as a teenager. I battled with that terrible, wretched 
captivating sin that just wreaks havoc in a life. But after, uh, on Sabbath afternoon, Leah said something to me. She said, I'm a little worried about you sharing that testimony because you made it, you didn't make it clear that you're not still looking at pornography. (laughs) And that's a good thing for a wife to be concerned about. How would you feel if your pastor was looking at pornography? You know, statistics show that a lot of ministers do look at pornography. Suddenly, if it's a minister, it would be a terrible problem. What about anybody that takes the name of Jesus Christ? I praise God that as I went through a conversion experience, God showed me that that had to come out of my life. He placed people in my life who were, gave me accountability, and He placed the most wonderful wife in my life who always makes sure that I'm staying close to Jesus. I praise God for deliverance over sin. I praise God for victory over sin. Does that mean that I'm perfect, that I've overcome everything? No. But Jesus wants to lead us in a path of righteousness. He wants to lead us in a path that grows brighter and brighter until the new day. He wants for us to overcome that temper. He wants for us to overcome that fretfulness that drives us crazy each week as we worry about how we're going to take care of the problems in our life. He wants for us to overcome the impatience with our family. He wants to give us the fruit of the Spirit. He wants for you to experience newness of life, to walk in brand new life. Seems like such an impossibility sometimes, doesn't it? To think that we could really be changed. Because I've tried really hard, and I tried for years with that habit of pornography, and it wasn't until Jesus delivered me, until I went to Jesus and found deliverance. The same with my temper, the same with other things that I've struggled with in my life. It's only through the power of Jesus that victory can be found. Back in Romans 6, verse 12, it says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are under law. You are not under law, right? Not that you are under law. You are not under law. So because I'm not under the law anymore, what does that mean? That I shouldn't live any longer with sin having dominion over my life. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, the grace of Jesus Christ is so much bigger, so much broader, so much more powerful than we have allowed it to be. Because it's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are saved. But that verse that Martin Luther quoted in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it goes on to say in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. To walk in newness of life. Jesus' grace is one that gives you the power to live a brand new life. So how do we have this experience? How do we not stop where the Protestant reformers stopped? How do we not end up dead while we have all of this theology, while we have all of this correct belief? How do we not end up like the Pharisees? Do you realize that Pharisees also kept the Sabbath? They worshipped in the synagogue on Sabbath. Do you realize that they tithed probably more perfectly than you do? They would take their plant and their cumin and they would take, they'd count ten leaves and they'd take one of the leaves off. They were faithful to God's commandments. They followed God. What they believed, what they thought on the outside was wholehearted. And what did Jesus say to them? Jesus said to them, you're just like whitewashed tombs. On the outside it looks great, but on the inside are dead man's bones. Friends, this is a life and death matter. Are you and I Are we sitting here in church today? Are we professing something? Do we have a name, but really we're dead? I don't want to end up at the judgment and find that out, that I didn't have a living relationship with Jesus, that 
I was professing something, I was believing something that made sense, but really my heart wasn't changed. My heart wasn't in it. And I don't want for any of you to come up to that moment and for Jesus to say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. In fact, that's what it says in Matthew chapter 7. It's going to take place in the end. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits... You will know them. It's terrifying to see somebody who professes to be alive and to find out that they're really dead. Just like it would be terrifying to to go up to a tree and to pick a, a fig off and to bite into it and to find that inside were actually thorns and that it really wasn't good fruit. And I believe that maybe that's why some people have been scared away from Christianity. Maybe that's even why some people have been scared away from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, I remember in high school, when I went to academy, there was one guy who lived in our community who was sort of a youth pastor. And he came to play basketball with us. And here he was, somebody professing to be following Christ. Somebody who was saying, hey, I am this spiritual leader in this community. And as we played basketball, he would begin to talk trash to me. He began to talk about my parents. He would begin to say these things. And I had other friends or people, friends, people who would say stuff while we played basketball. But when it came from somebody who was professing something like that, it made a difference for me. I began to say, what is this? It's, he's a hypocrite. I don't really want his God. I don't want the experience that he has. And friends, it can be the same thing for me. If my neighbors see that I'm professing to be a Christian, I go to church every Saturday, I have this experience with God, and then I mistreat them. I'm unfriendly, I'm unhappy, I mistreat my kids. How does that reflect on Jesus? It's terrifying to see somebody dead walking, or somebody that should be alive, dead These are the things that horror films are made of. And when Jesus describes this church, it's a terrifying thing. He says, you have a name that you're alive. It appears like you are alive, but you're really dead. And I don't want you to pass by this morning without applying this to your heart. I don't want to pass by this piece of Scripture without applying it to my heart. Because I can walk out saying, yeah, that's great. That's a powerful message from Jesus. And I hope so-and-so is listening to it but I've been in the church for so long. I'm an elder in the church. Maybe God is speaking just to the spiritual leaders. Maybe God is speaking to those who feel like they have a walk with Jesus this morning, but really inside we're dead. I don't want to find out that all along I've been missing Jesus. I haven't really been walking with Jesus. As Jesus goes on to say, he depicts that final judgment scene. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Weren't we following you faithfully? Weren't we doing all these amazing things for you? I was serving you at church. I put in so much time for you. I was being faithful to you, wasn't I? But what does Jesus say? Jesus goes on to say, verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who don't have such a loving relationship that you're willing to follow my will, whatever it may be, to do whatever I call you to do. You who are unwilling to have that relationship with me, unfortunately, you've chosen to be forever separated from me. I don't want to come down to the end and to find that I have neglected so great a gift of salvation as God has promised to you and I. Towards the end of the Protestant Reformation, 
There were some who clung to Jesus, clung to the truth of the Bible. They were faithful. They were doing whatever God had called them to do. There was a group of these called the Moravians. They were faithful to the Bible and they recognized that Jesus had given the call to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. So these Moravians would go out as missionaries around the world. They were following Bible truth to the best of their ability. One year, about the year 17, between 1736 and 1738, a group of 26 Moravians were headed off to the new colonies in the United States of America. As they sailed across the ocean, a huge storm came on that ship. Now, on that ship was another individual by the name of John Wesley. You may have heard his name before. John Wesley was an Anglican minister. He was an ordained minister, and he was also heading to Georgia to proclaim the gospel and to to convert the heathens that he'd heard were in America. There they were on this ship and in this gigantic storm as the, the boat is being tossed to and fro. John Wesley records in his book, in his uh journal how terrified he was how everyone on the ship was terrified for their lives but then he looked over and he saw this group of 26 moravians they were singing songs they were praising god they were praying they had peace because their life was hid with god in christ they had died with christ and they had been raised to a brand new life and these moravians were not afraid to die This impacted John Wesley immensely. As he saw the the peace that they had on the very verge of death, they thought that the ship was going under. Thankfully, the ship made it through the storm. They sailed on. It impacted John Wesley to such a point he writes a lot about it, but then he actually goes and he sees a Moravian minister and he says, what is it that you guys have? Why was it that you were able to have this faith in the midst of this chaotic storm? It's the same question that people will come to you and ask when you have peace in Christ, when you have love, when you have joy, when the world is crashing around you. They'll come and they'll say, what, what do you have? What is it? Tell me what it is. Here he is, an Anglican ordained minister who should know all the truth. But he recognized something was missing because he was terrified to die. And that old minister said, well, Don't you have faith in Jesus Christ? It's a simple answer. John Wesley said, well, I thought I had faith in Jesus Christ. I told him that I had faith in Jesus Christ, but I realized that maybe it was a vain profession. That maybe I had a name that I was alive, but really I was dead. Later on, John Wesley had come back to Europe and he was sitting listening to some lectures where they were reading from the writings of Martin Luther. You remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3. He tells the church of Sardis, what you need is to remember those things which you first had. Go back and remember those first teachings. And it was the teachings of Martin Luther, that beginning of the Reformation that worked a transformation in John Wesley's life. As John Wesley was sitting there, he writes in his journey about a quarter before nine, while he, he's talking about Luther who's being read there, was describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. If you know the story of John Wesley... It's amazing to see that this conversion took place so long into his ministry, so long after he'd studied theology, so long after he'd studied the Bible, that finally it came home to his heart. And we'll find out in the Church of Philadelphia the difference that this made for the entire world. John Wesley is a name that we recognize because the Holy Spirit came and worked a transformation in his heart. What was it that Jesus used to introduce himself to the church of Sardis. You remember how as he introduces himself so often, this is the key to the problem that a church faces. And here you have a dead church, a church that needs to be alive. What did he say? Back in verse 1 of chapter 3, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. Isaiah chapter 11 reveals that this is the spirit that would be given to Christ. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 talks about how there would come a branch from the root of Jesse and that branch would be an individual who would be given, verse 2 says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Do you see this sevenfold fullness of the spirit? The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of knowledge and understanding, the spirit of wisdom and counsel, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. What was the one I missed? Let's start it again. Let's start again. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of might and counsel, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord. Sevenfold fullness of the spirit of God. And sure enough, this is where Paul takes us. In our concluding verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, verse 11, Jesus reveals to you through inspiration, through the apostle Paul, how you too can have this experience. Because we may say, well, that's great. I've been baptized. But still I struggle with those old things in my life. You don't understand. I've been struggling with this for so many years. I have taken it to Jesus. I've asked for Him to give me a brand new life. But still I I struggle on. Still I'm having this same experience. Romans chapter 8, verse verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if that same Spirit that resurrected Jesus, that same resurrection power, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, we need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus tells the church of Sardis to watch, to hold fast, it reminds me of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, watch and pray. It's only through watching and praying that we'll be filled with the Holy Spirit that will lead us to walk in a brand new life, that will lead us to leave behind that temper, to leave behind that that habit of pornography, that habit of smoking, that habit of whatever has chained us in this life. It's only by the grace of Jesus Christ pouring out His Holy Spirit that we can walk in newness of life. The Review and Herald, January 17, 1893, says the Spirit of God with its vivifying power must be in every human agent that every spiritual muscle and sinew may be in exercise. Without the Holy Spirit, without the breath of God, there is torpidity of conscience, loss of spiritual life. Many who are without spiritual life have their names on the church records. We're sorry that even though joining a church... It doesn't mean that you're saved. It doesn't mean that your name is recorded in the book of life because Jesus goes on to tell the church of Sardis, if you don't repent, I'm going to blot your name out of the book of life. Many are without spiritual life and they have their names on the church records, but they are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They may be joined to the church, but they are not united to the Lord. They may be diligent in the performance of a certain set of duties and may be regarded as living men, but many are among those who have a name that thou live and are dead. Friends, the reality is there may be many of us sitting here this morning who are going through the motions, who are recognizing a need for the Holy Spirit to lead us to walk in newness of life. Don't settle for a dead Christian experience. Don't settle for just having Jesus cleansing and justification when Jesus wants to give you by His grace a brand new life so that you can walk in newness of life. As I close, I just want to again have another time of silence and prayer for you to evaluate in your own experience where you are in your walk with Jesus. Is your walk alive? Is it living? Is it active? Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? If not, plead with Him to pour out His Holy Spirit on you. 
Come to prayer meeting where we spend time praying together for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Come to the hour of power every morning before Sabbath school from 8 to 9 a.m. It's worth getting up early to have life, to be filled with the Spirit. If you're lacking that experience, come to Jesus today. Ask Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. After I pray, at the end we're going to have some elders up here in the front. And if you feel that you need some special prayer right now because God has left something, a burden on your heart, because you recognize a need of new life, then just invite you to come forward at the close and they will pray with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing Sabbath where we have gotten a living and visible illustration of what you want for our lives in the baptism of Sheila. How you want for us to leave behind that old life, to become new creations in Christ Jesus. That the old would be gone and that the new would come. Father, I recognize in my life that there are still dead areas. That I need that vivifying Spirit of God in my life. We invite you to search our hearts this morning. And to reveal to us where we are at. Father, don't let us just settle into, I've been in this church for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Don't let us settle into, well, I believe in Jesus. And all the while, actually have no spiritual life. Father, speak to our hearts now, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient for us. That your strength is made perfect in our weakness, that we don't need to go to lengths of whipping ourselves and praying a certain number of prayers. We have salvation in Jesus. Salvation that is full salvation that delivers us from sin. Father, strengthen our belief. Strengthen our expectation. Help us to believe that you are leading us today to walk in newness of life. Father, bless my friends as they go out this week to be filled with your Spirit, to bear fruit that is good fruit, that proves that they know Jesus as their living and personal Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.